0: Welcome to the first episode of Trauma Runs the World. I'm your host, Sammy Tisvayi, and today we'll be discussing generational trauma of the slave. But first, let's understand what generational trauma is. Generational trauma is defined as unresolved trauma and shame genetically inherited from your mother or father through epigenetic inheritance. But first, let's break down this academia definition. Trauma is simply a person's emotional response to a stressful or distressing experience. But what events cause quote unquote trauma? Abuse, physical, emotional, sexual, or financial scandals, or even abandonment can all cause trauma. And trauma is described as generational trauma when it refers to the experiences that are most relevant to our recent two to four generation of family. To put this in perspective, We can see this generational trauma manifest in patterns of behavior. For instance, if one generation suffers from marriage breakdown due to infidelity, we can see this reoccurring pattern of infidelity leading to divorce in subsequent generations, in theory. How does generational trauma then move across generations? If we refer back to our original definition, the mechanism it gives for this movement of trauma is epigenetic inheritance. Epigenetic inheritance is a form of PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder. It's easier to show this concept through mice, as it always is with science things. Basically, studies were conducted where mice were given enough food and behaved normally. Then, after a time, the scientists reduced the food supply, and the mice became aggressive and anxious. Interestingly enough, When the original mice had children, the new generation remained aggressive and anxious, even when the food supply was increased to normal. After seeing these results, the scientists investigated why this happens, and they found that environmental influences can literally cause chemical reactions that change how DNA is transcribed or given from parent to offspring. But now let's apply this to humans. This idea of generational trauma and how it can shape future generations is very consequential to understanding our society. Think about the number of people, minorities in America, those in developing countries, that experience violence, hunger, abuse, fear from birth. In order to survive, they have to change their behavior. And as a result, generations are inevitably affected and cycles are repeated over and over again. Specifically, this episode focuses on shadow slavery and how scholars hypothesize that African-Americans have modified their behavior over centuries to survive. And we see that in evidence today. An important scholar in today's episode is Dr. Joy DeGruy. She's a renowned psychologist who specifically focuses on how African-Americans show effects of generational trauma. And she wrote a book around a theory to explain the effect of generational trauma on African Americans she calls post-traumatic slave syndrome. In the book, she shows how post-generational adaptations are created and preserved by using her experiences in South Africa to connect with the behavior she saw in African Americans. Now, I will read you a short excerpt from her book that allows us to see how these behaviors are different between these two groups. Dr. Joy DeGruy writes, I recalled being at a school parents' meeting where I overheard a conversation occurring between two mothers. One of the mothers was black and the other white. Their children were classmates and played sports together at school. The black mother commented on the achievements of the white mother's child, saying, Your son is really coming along. The white mother responded with pride. Thank you. He's quite the man. He is a talented and gifted program here at school. And as you know, he's playing well in the little league. He has really excelled this year. He's just like his father. The white mother went on for some time, singing the praises of her child. When she finished, she turned her attention to the black mother's child, remembering how exceptional he was, and said, your son is also doing quite well, I hear. Before she finished her statements, the black mother, who too was clearly proud of her little boy, said, oh girl, he's such a mess at home. Sometimes I could just strangle him. Then there was a time at the local bank When I arrived and I noticed there were lots of people in line waiting to see a teller. There was a black mother at the bank with three small children. The children were standing close to their mother, so close in fact that they were actually holding onto her legs. Occasionally, one of the children would become curious about something or someone in the bank and attempt to explore that object or person. However, any effort to leave the mother's side resulted in sharp verbal chastement and a snap of her fingers immediately get back to her side. In the same time, towards the back, there was another mother standing in line waiting for her available teller. Only she was white. The white mother also had several small children close in age to the black mother's children. The mother had her hands full trying to stay in line while her little boys wandered about, skipping, twirling, and rolling on the floor and asking questions of the bank's security guard. The white mother did not insist that her children stand by her side. Instead, she tried to keep an eye on them and apologized to the people in line who her children were annoying. Now, she tells us these experiences to show us the difference between how the black mother and the white mother is mothering her child. But then she goes on further to connect this to experiences during slavery that might have shaped these behaviors we see today. Later on, she continues to say, Now viewed through a historical lens of slavery and its aftermath, one may better understand the hesitancy of African-American mothers to acknowledge the fine qualities of their children. When we roll the scene back a few hundred years, we see a slave master walking through the fields, coming upon a slave woman. The slave master approaches her and her children and remarks, well now, that Mary of yours is really coming along. The slave mother, terrified that the slave master may see the qualities in her daughter that could merit her being sold, she says, No sir, she ain't worth nothing. She can't work, she's stupid, she's shiftless. The slave mother's degrading comments about her daughter were spoken in an effort to dissuade the slave master from selling or molesting her daughter. And of course, no one would fault her. This behavior was nothing special. Slave mothers and fathers have been belittling their children in an effort to protect them for hundreds of years. Yet what originally began as an appropriate adaptation to a dangerous, filled environment has been subsequently transmitted down through generations. Now we have to think about how if in current time without these dangers, black mothers and fathers are belittling their children, how much of an impact that has on their self-esteem and self-worth and how it will impact their ability to see themselves doing great things if they feel that their mother or father don't even believe in them. What's interesting to me is that in that example she talked about, she said that the black mother was proud of her child, but it seems like this behavior of belittling the child in front of others is kind of an unconscious, automatic response to praises of the child. And that further makes me think that this theory that it connects to slavery and that this trauma has been passed down through generations makes even more sense. Furthermore, if we really think about the mother that was belittling her child, her mother also probably did that to her. And then the mother, her grandmother also did that to her mother. So that passing down of behavior is also very viable. Then she continues on with the same historical lens to describe why the black mother was keeping the child close to her while the white mother was letting them run around. She writes... With the same historical lens, one can better understand why the mother in the bank insisted that her children be near her. In the slave environment, and continuing through Reconstruction and long after Jim Crow, it was inherently unsafe for Black children to stray, wander, or question white people. Such behavior could result in severe punishment or even death. Thus, Black slaves were hypervigilant about the whereabouts of their children, for hypervigilance meant survival. This is, again, reaffirming this idea that the behaviors that Black people had to create in order to survive in the slave environment still exist today. And when we consider how very little mental health outreach, any sort of therapy has been given to the Black community, there's no wonder why these behaviors have been able to transmit down. But again, if we think about the effect of this kind of behavior on the children, well, On the surface, it might seem that they're well-behaved, keeping next to their mother. What it's really teaching them is that they're not safe, and they're not free, really, and they're not able to express their feelings and emotions as freely as their white peers can. It creates kind of, from the beginning, a pressure to not express yourself fully, which is kind of the opposite of freedom. These experiences that Dr. Joy DeGruy explained also made me think about my own experiences. So my parents are from Africa, specifically Ethiopia, and we immigrated here about 10 years ago. So they didn't really have generations that had to deal and adapt with discrimination in America the way African-Americans have had to. And further than that, Ethiopia has never been colonized, so there's not really even that experience of being subjugated uh, that would create such adaptions. And the evidence of this that I really saw is that my parents would never degrade me in front of others. In fact, they would sing praises too highly, and it would often make me uncomfortable. Because personally, I just believe humility is the best way, if that makes sense. And additionally, too, when we would go to stores, I remember, especially when we were young, me and my sister would run around the store my mom would always yell at us saying like where did you guys go and she would refer to black mothers that would have their children holding on to the carts and then she would say look at them they're you know following the rules they're by their mother you guys need to learn from that and I always saw that I also was like they're more disciplined but again we saw with this book and this connection to slavery that this is goes much deeper than that but What was interesting is that my mother never enforced this on us. Like when we would go to stores, it would always happen that we would just wander and she would find us in the end by the cashiers or something. But she never really enforced it. Again, because I think she doesn't have the deeply rooted hypervigilance that African-Americans have had to adapt throughout, throughout generations. And this really shows us how even though slavery is 400 years ago, This shows us really how deep trauma runs, how what has happened or didn't happen 400 years ago can drastically change the behaviors of two groups. In this case, my mother is Black, we're Black, but we, again, don't have those same experiences. And as a result, even these small behaviors change. And this is, of course, going to apply to the bigger issues, which is further highlighted by Dr. Joy DeGruy in the next section of her book, where she compares two villages that she visited. So first she visited Nidbele. So the first place she visited was Nidbele. She observed that the children there were welcoming. um, They were very delightful. And when she talked with their parents and other members of the village inside the houses, they stayed in the corner. They were very quiet and respectful. And she noted they did this without any instruction. They just knew that that's what they were supposed to do. And then when it was appropriate, they sang songs to her and asked questions. She observed, and I quote, confidence, humility, and security in these children. Later on her trip, she visited a village in South Africa called Ana And this village was different from Nidbele because those that lived where were descendants of Africans that had been enslaved by the Dutch. This community was completely different. They had no tribal language. So there was kind of a lack of community. Their clothing was very similar to sharecroppers in America. There was issues with drug abuse, violence, poverty, shame, hopelessness, lack of education. And interestingly enough, all of these things are also characteristics of ghettos in America, where the descendants of slaves or Black Americans predominantly preside. And she also noted that the children were rough in manner. They were very agitated, unruly, dirty and didn't have the sense of self-assurance and security that she saw within the other children and then again i want to note that when she says self-assurance security as a psychologist she has ways to measure this and they're not just objective measures of these children so these two villages show us that this post-traumatic slave syndrome is so prevalent how the brutalization of peoples leads to adaptations and behavior that travel across generations. Because we can see a clear difference in these two communities. One is healthy, the people in it are happy, and the other community is broken. It has cycles of poverty and lack of education. The children there are not developing in a healthy way. And this, I believe, is a start to understanding the root of the breakdown of the black community and also the breakdown of various communities around the world that have experienced brutalization, mass trauma, or even the breakdown of individual families that have experienced generational trauma. And this idea will serve as the backdrop to the variety of issues that we will explain here on this podcast. Furthermore, although my experiences with generational trauma don't stem from my descendants coming from slaves, I can say that as an immigrant, I have my fair share of generational trauma. See, when we first arrived here, we really had no one. My mom and dad tried to hold on to the people that sponsored us here, regardless of how they mistreated them, because all their family was back home. They would invite our quote-unquote family for dinner, and after they would leave, they would stress about how, if they had said anything wrong, or if a look passed over their faces that expressed their dislike for us. I remember when I was in second grade, we were at one of their houses and I was apparently talking in a rude voice and it was something that I didn't realize because I was in second grade. And when I got home, I received harsh punishment for it, if you know what I mean. And this left a lot of, you know, impact on me because it really was the paramount of my parents' tendency to... people please and overthink about people and this has ingrained in me Uh, I will believe that people um, are really scarce and I didn't realize this until recently but researching this episode and over the past few years really diving into psychology has really helped me connect how the behaviors I saw in my parents have led me to enact those same mindsets in my life for example I'll hang out with friends And everything is going fine and afterwards i will overthink and think that they hate me suddenly i catch myself observing people's faces closely to see of any change believing that they'll suddenly turn away from me or show that they dislike me and this idea that the mindsets of our parents the mindsets of generations before us can impact how we live our lives today is something i've clearly foreseen firsthand and I'm sure you all could probably think of examples if you, in your life, if you really connected your, your parents' behaviors to yours, that would help you understand yourself or even your community more. And that's really the goal of today's episode, is to show how the generational trauma affects youth on a very severe level. They can struggle with developing healthy relationships, depression, anxiety, and other issues, depending on what the trauma they're dealing with is. And throughout history, is cycles of oppression that result in the brutalization of mass amounts of people. And the scars that they leave can't be changed simply by changing laws or or making things more politically correct. The scars that people have to heal from are psychological as well. And only way we can really regain this healing is through understanding where the scars are to begin with. And it's through this that I believe that we can allow oppressed groups or even individuals, to regain their humanity and the fullness of their freedom. Thank you for listening, and if you'd like to learn more about what we've discussed here today, you can check out some resources, like What is Generational Trauma, an article by Michael H. Hallett, and also Dr. Joy DeGruy's book, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you next time.